Welcome to World of You, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. At their summit last week in Brussels, EU leaders agreed that the Brexit negotiations had not made sufficient progress to enable them to move on to the next phase of talks. But what does sufficient progress mean? How will we know when this elusive staging post has been arrived at? There may be more to this question than meets the eye. Our Europe editor, Paddy Smith, will tell us more. We'll also hear from Paddy about how the confrontation between the Spanish government in Madrid and the Catalan administration in Barcelona over the issue of Catalan independence is viewed from Brussels. And as the Bundestag meets for the first time since last month's federal election in Germany, Derek Scully will be on the line from Berlin to tell us about the mounting difficulties facing Angela Merkel as her support base erodes from both inside and outside her party. But first to that Brexit story, Paddy joins me now from Brussels. Uh, Paddy, before we get into this question of sufficient progress and what it means and how we'll recognise it when we see it, it might be no harm just to remind us where the Brexit negotiations stand at the moment. We were supposed to be moving at this point from phase one to the second phase of talks, but we're still stuck in the first phase, aren't we? Yes, it was agreed at the beginning uh, by the European Council that uh, the talks would be broken into two broad uh, phases, one which is known by everybody as the divorce talks, which we're involved in at the moment, and then once those divorce talks are resol- have resolved the major issues uh, to do with citizens' rights, to do with the financial settlement, and to do the Irish border, then they could move on to future relationship talks, which are, are to do with trade and the sort of issues like the border, which uh, can't be resolved um, at this time. Now, there are three strands under discussion in phase one. There's the Irish border, citizens' rights, and probably the thorniest of the three, the Brexit divorce bill. And that is how much the UK should pay on its departure from the EU to to honour its existing financial obligations. Are we close to reaching a position in relation to any of those strands where the EU might be prepared to say, that's fine, we've made sufficient progress now, we can move on? Well, certainly on on citizens' rights, which is the rights of, of citizens who stay on in uh, either the European Union or in uh, the the UK after uh, uh, after Brexit has happened. We're close enough to an agreement there. There's still an argument about whether their rights should be copper fastened by the European Court of Justice, uh, which the UK says it doesn't want anything to do with. Um, But it does look like we're close to to a a, a sufficient progress, a, a type of agreement. On Ireland, the progress is, is substantial, uh, although in a couple of areas it's a little unclear what's happening. Uh, the British have come up with a list of 140 uh, areas of cooperation or institutions that, that work on a cross-border basis. Most of these are underpinned in some way by EU legislation. So there has to be a discussion on how to preserve these in, in the context of one of the two parties leaving the European Union. And that is quite a complicated and a slow business, and they're working on it at the moment. They've also, they have reached agreement on on safeguarding the common travel area. But the other area where they haven't reached agreement on is the border itself and and how to preserve the border. Uh, And there's some bit of an argument going on, largely behind the scenes, uh, by with the British saying we, we can't deal with any more of this until we get onto the future relationship talks, which are to do with trade and, and the critical issues uh, on, on, on the border. And the Irish saying, no, no, you have to come up with more now. Uh, we, we are insisting that you explain to us how it is you're going to preserve this frictionless border, which everybody says they want. And, and you've hit there on an interesting point, Paddy, and you've written about this in, in a, an interesting op-ed article in, in 
yesterday's Irish Times and then irishtimes.com about the possibility of the border issue actually becoming um, a phase two issue. Now, we don't want to get bogged down in this kind of terminology too much, but it was seen at the outset, I think, as a kind of a, an achievement on the Irish government's part that the, the Irish question was one of the first items on the agenda. And it's very important for the Irish government that progress is made on this before we move on. But is there a sense here that the British argument, the British are winning this argument, that actually you can't really deal with the border until you've dealt with the issue of trade, because they're all wrapped up together? Yes, I mean, the border, uh, as far as people are concerned, uh, is dealt with. Uh, the common travel area will be safeguarded. But as far as trade is concerned, it's very difficult to see how, if the British are determined to leave the customs union, uh, there will not have to be some form of, of hardware on, on, on the border. And so it is... Uh, it's, it's, in many ways, the British have got an argument here, but the Irish are saying, no, um, there is much more that they can do to say that this will be a frictionless border and we want them to, to come up with it. It's all about expectations of the British and what people mean by sufficient progress. And the Irish are saying very clearly, sufficient progress includes much more clear commitments on what is going to happen on the border. So what what are the Irish looking for from the British now, say, over the, in the next uh, coming weeks of talks? Everybody agrees we want a frictionless border. Um, is it that we want, uh, the Irish side wants to see very specific proposals from London as to how this is going to work? And until we see that, we won't really support the idea that we can move on to talking about trade and transitional arrangements. Yes, uh, and, and I can't, I, I actually don't know what the answer to that question is, but what the British can say. The Irish are saying that what they want is a roadmap. They don't want the whole problem resolved. They, they accept that, that thing, elements will, will have to wait until the trade discussion happens, but they want clarity from, from the British on, on this. I mean, ideally, what they would like the British to say, which they're not going to say, is that they would stay in the, in the customs union because that would mean that the border wouldn't, would become an irrelevancy. And, uh, but that isn't, isn't going to happen. Uh, and and uh, what is actually going to happen between now and December is, is, a, is a bit of a mystery. Uh, it's also a mystery in that the, the Commission's position is clearly has been up till now with, with uh, Ireland entirely in terms of interpreting the mandate that the Commission has been given for the negotiations. But just a, a small hint of divergence uh, has happened in the last few days when the Commission published a, a, a fact sheet uh, for the information of journalists and others about what was going on in the Brexit talks. And in the fact sheet, they suggested that actually the border issue was, was a phase two issue, uh, which has caused some eyebrows to be, to be raised on the Irish side. And what kind of standing does a fact sheet have? I mean, is, this a, is it essentially a, a press release or does it actually represent, you know, the kind of substantive thinking of Michel Barnier and his team? Well, that, that's, that's the question. And the uh, commission says, of course, we're, we're still 100% with, with uh, the Irish here. But there, there's just a niggling doubt there, particularly as, as David Davis in the Commons last week uh, actually said that he thought that the commission was accepting the British argument that they had done enough on the border issue and that they could put it, pause it until until the second phase uh, of talks. And he expected, in fact, that to be reflected in the, in the conclusions of the summit. Uh, it wasn't reflected in the conclusions of the summit, but it was reflected in this uh, rather odd way in this uh, fact sheet.
And where do we stand, Paddy, then on this, the, the, the other strand, the divorce bill? I mean, nobody expects or we, we know it's not even the intention that the bill itself would be sort of settled before December. But um, how far apart are the sides, um, tr- how far apart on the question of agreeing what the parameters of the bill might be when Britain finally leaves? Well, they're very far apart. I mean, basically, the uh, Mrs. May in Florence uh, gave one significant concession in which she said basically she would come up with 20 billion euros uh, if uh, the British got a transition period of two years. Essentially, what she was saying was she would continue paying what the British pay every year uh, for two years and that that would take a, a large chunk out of what uh, the European Union expects them to, to pay. Uh, that transition hasn't yet been agreed. And and then and the Europeans, of course, insist that the bill is actually much, much larger than that, Pro- possibly another 40 billion, possibly even more than that. Uh, and her only commitment was that she will honour all the obligations, the obligations that the British have undertaken as members of the European Union. Point is, uh, at the moment, she hasn't been prepared to specify that. And so that strand of the talks is actually just dead in the water because they can't talk about anything. And presumably, if they don't make uh, rapid progress on that in the coming weeks, Michel Barnier, the EU chief negotiator, will not be in a position in December to come back to the EU leaders and recommend moving on to the next phase. Precisely. Um, uh, And to show its good willing, though, the the Commission has uh, been instructed uh, to prepare a mandate for the second phase of, of discussions. And that was really the main outcome of, of the summit last week, uh, was, a, was this willingness to move forward internally on preparing a new mandate. But uh, it won't be much use if they can't get a deal. And how damaging would it be, do you think, if they're not in a position to, to move on in December? Is, is there a sense that December was a sort of real deadline? Um, and what, what happens if that deadline isn't met? Well, they're running out of time. It, it takes time to negotiate, a, a, a particularly a trade agreement. And the idea is that by October of next year, they should really have both deals substantially in the bag so that Parliament and, uh, and various bodies around the European Union can ratify uh, any deal to allow the British to leave then in, in uh, March of, of uh, two, 2019. Um, but between December and October, you really have the shortest space uh, of time for those negotiations. If, if the talks on the divorce run on into January and maybe February, um, it's virtually impossible to see a deal being done in time. And so asking you to be Nostradamus, Paddy, do you think there will be sufficient progress made by December? I suspect that there will, uh, because sufficient progress isn't... Uh, as everybody keeps pointing out, a resolution of the problems. It's simply a a considerable step on the way to resolving them. And we don't need, for example, on the the Brexit bill, we don't need an actual figure. What we need to do is agree a methodology for calculating that figure. And and so that shouldn't be beyond the wit of of, uh, these uh, two sides. So uh, does it come down to politics? If the political will is there to move on, I mean, sufficient progress can be declared really at any time. Yes, but it, it is also the case that um, there are a number of member states, uh, both net contributors and recipients of cash from the EU budget, who have a very strong interest in ensuring that the maximum uh, possible amount of money is extracted from the, from the British. Uh, they're not going to just roll over because people are, are, feel that we're running out of time. 
um, they, they are they are very adamant that the, that the British must come up with a proper uh, payment. Um, okay, Paddy, we'll, we'll we'll leave Brexit there for the moment. We'll we'll certainly be coming back to that subject again. And um, I just wanted to ask you briefly about another issue which um, we discussed in detail on the podcast last week, and and we'll be coming back to it again, which is the the sort of looming constitutional crisis in Spain over Catalan secession and just maybe to get a, a Brussels perspective as it were from yourself now as we know the, the Catalan parliament meets on Thursday to decide on its response to the Spanish government's decision to impose direct rule um, but we all, we've already heard senior people in the Catalan administration saying that they won't let this move by Madrid happen so there are the makings there of a real constitutional crisis how much concern is there about this in Brussels and other EU capitals do you think? I think there, there's a lot of concern um, because uh, it, it is it is a, uh, it is not a healthy situation to have a, a, a one of the major uh, European countries um, effectively paralysed politically and beginning to see economic damage uh, done to it. Uh, but the capitals are are completely united in the view that this is a Spanish problem and that they will not see uh, EU intervention. Uh, they they would regard. EU uh, negotiating on, on uh, even as a, a, an honest broker, uh, somehow legitimising the position of the, of the Catalans, and so that there's no question of doing that. And the other intervention that they did make early on in this dispute was to make it absolutely clear uh, that there was no question of a Catal- Catalonia uh, as an independent state uh, being allowed to remain part of the European Union. They would have to apply for readmission uh, with all the problems involved in um, the, the application process. And this is, um, and that, of course, would, would, would allow the Spanish uh, government to veto any application. So uh, a Catalan uh, unilateral de- declaration of independence uh, will mean effectively that Catalonia leaves the European Union and does not get back in until it has made its peace with, with Madrid. And is there any sympathy for the Catalan position out there? I mean, is, is that a kind of unified position right right across the block, or are there have there been any voices of support um, for the Catalans, for the Catalan no, nationalists? No, there's very, very, very little. Um, there is a widespread sense, even reflected in statements made by Donald Tusk, the president of the European Council, that maybe the uh, Madrid mishandled uh, the uh, the the vote and and its heavy handedness with the with police uh, was, was not a good way to approach things and there's a lot of talk about the need for dialogue and emphasising that all the time and the need for proportionality but that doesn't mean uh, in any way that the sympathy for, for the Catalan uh, aspiration uh, I was amused uh, to see uh, at the uh, European Commission uh, briefing yesterday that the issue reared its head again in a slightly uh, different form when uh, the Commission was asked if it would like to comment on the two votes taking, that took place in Italy uh, over the weekend in Lombardy and Veneto, uh, where both of them declared that they wanted greater independence and that the uh, discussion was shut down very quickly by the Commission spokesman who said, no, no, internal matter for the Italians. Yes, yeah. Now, of course, there was a difference and th- those referendums were held with the, the, the blessing of Rome, as it were, and they were they were non-binding. But um, some on the Catalan side do argue that there's a, a double standard here. They say the European Commission has no problem interfering, for example, in Poland, where they, there's a perception that the government has undermined the independence of the judiciary. And they say that's a legitimate issue for the EU to get involved in. But when you see 
Spanish police involved in violent confrontations with people who are just out peacefully casting a vote. The, the, there isn't a murmur from the from the commission. Is there a case there? Uh, there is. Uh, there's certainly an argument to be made, although it has to be said that the uh, the there is general agreement that the uh, Catalan authorities acted outside Spanish law uh, and that they they were the ones who were breaking Spanish law by holding the referendum. Uh, and therefore, you know, the, the, the that is the, the, the central issue which the European Union would be concerned about, that not the um, overaction, overreaction of the police. And, and would would um, f- kind of fears about secessionist movements um, within their own countries, would that be a kind of motivating factor for, for European leaders in sort of rallying around and supporting Madrid in, in, in this particular um, context? Well, it's a consideration, although it has to be said that secessionism has, has, has gone into an abeyance. I mean, a few years ago now, there were very lively and strong secessionist uh, movements from uh, from the north of Italy to, to Brittany to Corsica. Uh, and, but those movements have very much waned. And it, indeed, I, I, I should mention uh, Scotland uh, too. But the, the, the movements have waned. And so that there is less concern in the capitals about secessionism. Uh, it's simply a, a question of, of uh, the the political chaos which they fear is going to engulf or is engulfing Spain at the moment. Okay, and finally, Paddy, I mean, if you, you've explained, I suppose, why the European Commission hasn't involved itself in a, in a director in a public way. Is this the kind of scenario though, where there might be things going on behind the scenes where contacts might be made um, between you know Brussels and Madrid and Barcelona to try to get some kind of dialogue going and, and diffuse tensions? I think that the best you could say is. The Commission has probably said it is available should anybody need their help, but uh, I think it's unlikely they're making those contacts on the ground. Okay. Um, Paddy, thanks very much for that. I say we'll be returning to that topic again. Okay. Cheers. Good luck. Next to Germany, where the Bundestag sat today, Tuesday, for the first time since the election a month ago that handed a victory of sorts to Chancellor Angela Merkel. The CDU party, which she has led for almost 17 years, is poised to continue as the main party in government. But Merkel is a weakened leader after a result that saw her party hemorrhage support to the far-right alternative for Deutschland, which enters Parliament for the first time. Derek Scali, our Berlin Berlin correspondent, joins me now from there. Uh, Derek, we'll talk about Angela Merkel and her problems in a moment. But first, tell us about the new sitting of the the sitting of the new Bundestag today. You were there. What was the atmosphere like, and was it was there any drama? Well, I mean, the Bundestag is hardly the most exciting parliament in the world. I'll be perfectly honest. Um, but today it was a very, very exciting mood because for the last four years we've had a grand coalition. So the two largest parties in Germany had a four-fifths majority. So uh, that meant that they could just ram railroad anything through Parliament. That the, the debates uh, were, as a result, rather, rather um, dull. But today we had a new situation. There isn't a new government yet, or at least another month from that. But we had some formalities to deal with to come up with a new speaker and also uh, just watched the, the, the far-right AFD in Parliament for the first time. And um, this, if this is a, a, a sense of what we're going to have in the next four years, it's going to be a very interesting four years because there are two things. Today's vote was about two things. First of all, um, the other parties trying to work out how can we put Angela Merkel under pressure 
after the vote under more pressure? Uh, and secondly, how are the rest of the parties, the established parties in Germany, going to deal with this AFD, the far-right party? They're sitting quite appropriately in the far-right of the semicircular chamber. And, and this is the first time in decades that uh, an extremist party has been in the German parliament. So all the other parties are torn between uh, demonizing them and isolating them or killing them with kindness and uh, treating them just like any other party using the parliamentary order to and the parliamentary rules to um, hopefully uh, expose them for what they believe they are and trip them up. And that's where we are today. We had, um, we had the vote for uh, the, the Speaker of the Parliament, the parliamentary president, and the new parliamentary president is Wolfgang Schäuble, who listeners will probably be more familiar with as Germany's foreign minister for the last eight years. Uh, he's now 75. Uh, Chancellor Merkel sort of uh, complimented him out of the finance ministry and into the Speaker of Parliament role, which uh, it's a senior role. It's the number two in the constitutional pecking order. But obviously, politically, it's far less important than Chancellor or uh, Finance Minister, which he was. He was elected with over 500 in a 700-plus chamber. And uh, he gave a very good speech uh, talking about the need for uh, collegiality and for the right tone, that there's no uh, there's no place for people calling the parliament illegitimate. Uh, he was basically talking about the AFD, saying that, look, you're in the parliament now, uh, your parliamentarians act like it. And, and Derek, one curious thing about the Bundestag, um, you, uh, um, our uh, parliament in Ireland, the Dáil, has a fixed number of seats, 158. The German system is different and, and there are a record 709 deputies in the new parliament. Where did they all fit? Well, this is the problem. I was just looking down at it and they literally look like battery chickens at the back. Um, the floor is quite clever in the Bundestag. They are, there are a series of holes in the floor and you can uh, add or subtract chairs depending on uh, how many sort of German, German technology. And, uh, so, but even now they're reaching their capacity with over 700. Technically, they're only supposed to have 598 seats. But because of some peculiarities of German law, certain people, uh, certain parties often get extra seats. And now in, uh, in a further peculiarity to try and even out that uh, wrinkle of German parliamentary democracy, other par- parties have been given seats that were well over 700. It's va- rather unwieldy. There aren't enough offices for people. But this is what we have to deal with. Um, it's a very crowded parliament. Uh, we've got six or seven parties, depending on how you count it, and, uh, and this new AFD party. So uh, it was very much like the first day of school, but with this added uh, wrinkle of how do you deal with these new arrivals, nobody wanted to sit beside the AFD. Um, but now they've been put in on the far right of the parliament um, uh, as you look out from Chancellor Merkel's seat uh, and they're in beside the Liberal Free Democrats and they're one of the two parties hoping to form the new government with Merkel. Now, um, mention of, of Chancellor Merkel, um, and I, I want to ask you about some of the challenges she faces and, and they're considerable, but we probably should first salute her, really. Um, this is a woman who has been Chancellor for 12 straight years, is now poised for another term. That's a really a remarkable, almost incredible achievement in a modern European democracy. Well, this is it. I mean, the half-life of politicians these days is decreasing by the day. I mean, they're, they're starting younger in power, as we've seen in the last weeks and months. But I think they're also getting out earlier because it's just such an inhumane system at this stage. You just need to look at their uh, workload during the week and then you add on an all-nighter in Brussels every month or two. So Angela Merkel is quite a powerhouse. I mean, she's, she, she, she abolished nuclear energy, but she's kind of like a political nuclear reactor all of her own. So she's in Parliament looking a little tired, but um, she's got a co- coalition talks ahead of her, which would be enough to uh, exhaust anybody. But she has stayed in power. She's slipped, obviously. Uh, she got the worst result for her party since 1949, and that has brought out a lot of young 
young pretenders, young challengers saying, we need to think about what kind of politics we're doing and we need to think about the time after Angela Merkel. That's new. Uh, it's very early days in that discussion, but it definitely suggests what many people already knew, that this is her last four-year term. And how did she respond to, it's been a month since we had the election result, as we know it wasn't a, a, a good result for the CDU from that point of view and that they did hemorrhage some support to the far right. Did, did Merkel sort of invite a, 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 an open and, and serious discussion about uh, what went wrong for the party or has there been a debate of that kind in, the, in that last month? No, that's exactly why I think the debate is now in full swing about her and about the style of politics. She took the party to the centre. She abandoned a lot of this conservative politics. And a lot of conservatives in her party have said, look, this is, this is now the price we have to pay. We now have a far-right party, uh, which is uh, very extremely Eurocritical. Uh, some people would say Islamophobic, uh, migration critical. And though some of those, some but not all of those positions used to be CDU, Angela Merkel's positions, or at least her party. And they're saying, um, look, you've abandoned uh, right-wing German voters. They've abandoned you now. We need to win the back and fast. And if not with you, then with somebody else. Merkel herself has infuriated uh, the conservatives in her party by saying, yes, we got the worst results since 1949, but I'm not sure what I would do differently. So that has been literally red rag to a bull. So I think we've got um, coalition talks ahead. Uh, so that will take another month at least. Um, but once they're back in Parliament, I think Angela Merkel will have a slightly bumpier ride than she's used to because there are lots of sort of late 30s, early 40-year-old politicians, a bit like Macron, a bit like Sebastian Kurz in Austria. And they're anxious. They've got the bit between their teeth and they're anxious to run with this as far as they can. But um, Merkel is a, a wily old operator at this stage. She knows how the game is played. I think it would be, it would be too soon to write her off. We've seen what happened in Britain where the Prime Minister there, Theresa May, also returned for, um, with um, a disappointing result in, a, in the general election, returned a weakened leader and since then she has stumbled really from one calamity to another. It's almost painful to watch. Is there a danger that Angela Merkel is on that kind of slide or do you think she's in a strong enough position to turn things around? Oh no, I think the vast majority of her party still see Angela Merkel as their vote winner, as their meal ticket to be perfectly honest, politically and literally. Uh, for all of the MPs returning. Um, and they're, they're still the largest party and they achieved one of their main goals was that nobody could form a government without the CDU. So that um, is an achievement in itself. And particularly with the uncertainty over Donald Trump uh, and the, the, the looming Brexit negotiations, I think a lot of people in Germany uh, don't want any experiments uh, at this time. And Angela Merkel has seen it all at this stage in Europe and around the world. And uh, the other important issue is that CDU, her party, they don't do putches. They, they, uh, they wait for somebody to go. They don't uh, knife somebody in the back and throw them in the river. So it would be very unusual. Uh, it would be the first time ever in their history if they uh, decided to shaft Angela Merkel. She would have to make a huge mistake. And I think the immigration crisis of the last two years has left her much chastened uh, and being careful about doing anything dramatic. So we'll see a more cautious uh, leader, but she will have a complicated coalition, a three-way coalition. That's a first in Germany. So she could have two smaller junior partners fighting amongst themselves uh, and uh, she could definitely have her hands full. But the notion that she will... Uh, she will be sort of be sailing off into the sunset in, in, uh, in, in a year or two uh, is unlikely. I think she will definitely see uh, some of the office. Now, that three-way coalition would be with the, the, the Free Democrats, a pro-business sort of right-of-centre economically uh, party, re returning to, to, uh, to Parliament, having lost out last time, and the Green Party. Is that coalition inevitable or are there serious obstacles to be overcome before we can be sure that that's, that's what the new government will look like? 
Well, everyone is saying it's not inevitable, but that's really just a negotiating tactic. There really isn't any other realistic arithmetic uh, option uh, than this coalition. But it's going to be a, a very unwieldy beast. I mean, it will stretch from centre-left, green, um, social, you know, big state spending, right across the political spectrum through the CDU over to the FTP, believes in small state tax cuts, um, leaving the market to operate for itself. So Angela Merkel will have to play sort of referee in that. Now, she does that quite well, sort of acting as a moderator, and it could play to her strengths. That's always what she's been good at. But she, whether it's on spending, whether it's on defence, whether it's on, on uh, environmental issues, whether it's on uh, housing, which is a big issue, or education, we, she's got two junior coalition partners that really couldn't be more different. So uh, in coalition talks, there will be a lot of pragmatism. But as soon as they get down to actually doing business in government, it could be, it could be a, a, an awkward cohabitation. It will, uh, it will just depend on, uh, it could be interesting, depending on how much credibility or how much political clout Angela Merkel still has, that could set the tone on which discipline she can actually bring into her coalition or not. And finally, Derek, um, just um, to, to go out where we where we come in, as where I'm, I'm interested in. Uh, you mentioned uh, Wolfgang Schäuble being elected the Parliament uh, President or Speaker today. Um, in some parliaments, you know, the, that role of Speaker is a, very much a non-political role, and and uh, the, the the holder of that office would be somebody who'd stay out of politics. Um, this man has been so influential in Europe; he's been the bane of anti-austerity activists all over Europe for so many years. Um, what kind of influence does this position allow him to have, both inside Germany and? outside. Have we in Europe heard the last of, of Mr. Schäuble? Oh, I think from a Eurozone perspective, yes, we have heard the last of it. Um, uh, unless some Euro crisis blows up again, the Parliament really won't be involved in European austerity politics or European reform politics. No, I think he has another, he has a final role to play. He's been in this Parliament for 45 years, imagine, since 1972. I think he has a very useful role to play in that uh, there's been some sort of emotional uh, upset and some would even say hysteria over the arrival of the AFD. And yes, it's some of the things the party says are not pleasant. But on the other hand, people have said, look, there's a, at least uh, almost two-thirds of the voters for the AFD didn't vote for the, this extremist party out of, uh, out of conviction, but out of protest because they felt that the other parties weren't representing their views. And I think, Angela, uh, I think Wolfgang Schäuble has a role to play as referee and said these are legitimately active politicians and once they don't go overboard with their populism, with their xenophobia or with their racism, um, they have a mandate and it will be interesting to see how he has to turn to his own party and to the other established parties and would you just calm down? And until they actually trip themselves up or delegitimize themselves, they have a role in German uh, political landscape. How he chooses to do that will be very interesting. But this could be a moment uh, sort of when German democracy leaves its teenage years and, and matures a further step. OK, well, with 709 deputies to marshal, I don't, I don't envy him his task. Derek, thanks very much for that analysis. We'll talk again soon. Take care. That's it for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.